a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. There are more than a few legends in this industry, but there are only a very few that everybody, and I mean everybody, absolutely love. And Maggie Beer is at the very top of my list. She's charming, she's disarming, and she's got a certain energy that is absolutely infectious. She can walk into a room and make everybody feel good. And that's maybe the reason she's been so successful. Her accolades are so long, it's almost too difficult to list, but it is a few. In 97, she was voted South Australia's Businesswoman of the Year. She has the Centenary Medal for Service to Australian Society through cooking and writing. She was voted Senior Australian of the Year in 2010 and is a member and Order of Australia for Tourism and Hospitality, as well as an illustrious restaurant career, has written 11 cookbooks, maybe more, my counting is sometimes off, and she is a superstar on our televisions, of course. So I couldn't be happier to welcome to the studio Maggie Beer. Maggie Beer, welcome to the podcast. I'm so pleased we finally got you into the studio because we've been trying to get you in for like a year or maybe more. So thank you. It's a pleasure, Gary. It's <laughs> lovely to talk to you again. I wasn't supposed to be listening to you, but you took a minute there just to try and organise Colin, who's your husband, <laughs> to uh, to find black sesame paste. No, was it black sesame paste? Black tahini, yes. Oh, black tahini. Well, yeah, you've got it. I love tahini. that. I was just giggling because I've gone <laughs> ever the the cook and the. So you've you've come into town, I presume, and you've got chores to yes. do. That's that's right. I mean, living in the country is great, but we, uh, you know, there are some ingredients. I couldn't <laughs> even get pomegranate molasses in the uh, in the Barossa because oh no one else wants to buy it, so the co-op won't keep it. Oh, well, there you go. So, what's the black sesame paste for? Just curious. Are you making Dan Dan noodles or some Szechuan speciality well, or something? Well, no, I, I thought I might add it to a baba ganoush Ooh. just to have, you know, a point of difference and some really robust uh, extra virgin olive oil and just to have that colour as well because, I, you know, I love tahini. I love I love that extra edge. So I haven't done it yet. It's just an idea. Oh, sounds delicious. <laughs> so I wanted to ask because we all know you uh, you know, everybody listening will know you and they'll be adoring uh, the fact that you've jumped onto this, you know, this chat. But I wanted to take you right back and see if you could, you know, describe an, another Maggie in a, in a different time. Maybe when you were 10 years old, you could be at the dinner table. Could you take yes. us there? Because I'm curious. I was lucky enough to be brought up in a family in Sydney, in the western suburbs of Sydney, where food was so important. My dad was passionate about produce and we ate every bit of the animal. And offal was my dad's favourite food and my favourite food. And so the very first thing I ever cooked when I was about seven were livers, chicken livers. It was about every mealtime. Mum came to be a really good cook. The, the the family story is dad taught her, but dad <laughs> didn't do any work. <laughs> I mean, dad had the ideas, uh, but mum did the work, except for when it came to making brawn or pulling an animal apart. When you say brawn, so maybe not even a lot of people 
know what brawn is these days. Ah, well, brawn from the pig's head. Yeah. And we used to make it every Christmas in the, you know, the crispers you used to put in the bottom of the fridge? Well, still are. And we'd make big crispers full and we'd pull everything apart and that beautiful gel that happens and... And then mum used to make this mayonnaise. Now, this will amuse you with Keens mustard powder and condensed milk. Wow. I was with, the, I was with you on the <laughs> Keens mustard powder. I went, that's reasonable. I like that. Condensed milk. And, and condensed milk and some vinegar. That's, that's what we made mayonnaise out of. That's the only, only thing that wasn't um, uh, true blue. <laughs> they would never have made a mayonnaise from hand because you know why um, there was no olive oil. There was no, the only olive oil right up to I was about 28 that, that I can remember olive oil being anywhere but from the chemist. Yeah, it was medicinal. Can you imagine that? Yeah. I don't think anybody listening was serious, but I have heard that, that, yeah, you'd have to go yes. to the chemist and they would ask you what you're using it for and uh-huh. lots of Greeks and Italians would go in and ask for, yes. yeah, so they could yeah. they could use it in that's, cooking. That's How strange. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, where did, so where did this love of um, things, you know, for your dad... It's unusual when we talk about it now. It is an interesting question. Well, my maiden name is Ackerman, and so um, my dad's forebears came from Germany. Um, My grandmother was reputed to be an amazing cook. Dad had this instinct for food, which I know I inherited, as Sassy did. And so it is unusual when you think about it. It was just part of my life. I thought everyone was like this. But um, I soon found out that wasn't so. <laughs> <laughs> who was at the Who was at the dinner table when you were younger? Oh, as a family, yeah. uh, I have two brothers: my eldest brother Peter, my youngest brother Robert, and um, we were always at the dinner table together because that was you know, we didn't have television. You know that was life. But when it was Christmas time, it was always a feast. Christmas was this huge feast and that's what I've continued to do all my life. Uh, And so it was there. It was all there. How beautiful. I read somewhere that your parents uh, reinvented themselves at some point. I'm not sure whether it was because you had difficulties in the family that maybe circumstances had changed. Can you tell us about that? My parents were manufacturers, Mm. manufacturers of kitchen equipment. And they actually made it, you know, in the days when aluminium was okay. And we had this big factory in lathes and it was actually, you know, we were manufacturers. There was difficulty getting the aluminium. My father had it coming in from Japan and a lot of people were connected to buy it and then the credit squeeze came and there was nothing written down. So we became bankrupt because we were responsible for this. Um, well, my, fam- my my dad was responsible for it. So we lost everything. And I was 14. I left school. And after a year when dad's health regained, because it took the stuffing out of him, they started um, cooking in leagues clubs as a way of living. First of all, it was a golf club and then Western Suburbs, Chester Hill RSL, They just cooked for the masses. But Dad used to hang fillets of beef 
He used to hang them till they went green. Wow, so he's ageing himself. He was ageing himself. <laughs> well, not himself, but I mean... No, no, he, he was ageing way before, <laughs> yeah. way before, um, you know, people did that. So he was always driven by flavour. Uh, but once again, mum did most of the work. I like the fact that you have this memory that mum did lots of the work. Was there a moment <laughs> where you went, Dad, come on, what's happening here? <laughs> Um, no, I don't think I did. <laughs> I, I think uh, um, Dad was the ideas person. Right. Um, but having said, they had this beautiful fillet of beef that was aged that some customers would send back, by the way. They also did curried sausages. Mm. <laughs> Do you have fond Sorry. memories of curried sausages? Just curious. <laughs> oh, I can't bear <laughs> the thought of curried sausages. I remember, and I know I'm, I shouldn't be talking about myself, but I remember when I was about, I don't know, I was about 15 or 16 and I was doing some waiting work to earn, earn money on the weekends and I did. I learned how to silver serve on a platter. See, that's how oh, yes. people go, silver service on a platter? This did exist. And I was given by the chef, it looked horrible, I think it was called turbigo, and it was a, a kidney dish in gravy with chopped up sausages. I'm sure classic Turbigo doesn't have sausages in it. I've actually never looked it up, but I remember looking at it and going, this looks like swill. I've got to serve this to like 10 people on a table. Anyway, there you go. Uh, Were you involved in that reinvention of where they were going in their lives? I wasn't involved because I started um, travelling from when I was 19 and in between to earn more money for the next lot of travelling, I would have several jobs and uh, uh, one of them was waitressing in a, a Swiss restaurant in Sydney and it was real food but uh, that was my first job in the game, so to speak. Just visiting mum and dad uh, and pu- deep fried pumpkin. Sorry, I'm Ooh, just we're missing I'm just out getting off culinary I'm delicacies. I'm just getting off on <laughs> on the memories and and sometimes I would I would visit and I would just look at the chaos and think <laughs> who would do this? <laughs> who would do this? And guess what? <laughs> <laughs> the rest is history, kind of thing. So where did yeah. where did it start for you then? Was it travel? Um, no, it's interesting. Travel from, say, 19 till nearly tw- well, 23, of which 24, a lot of it was living in Scotland and on Sky and Inverness and Loch Argyle, backwards and forwards. So the only food part of that travel was wild game, you know, like uh, poached salmon and deer. <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> But that was that was the only food part of my life. When I did travel in Europe, I didn't have the money. So no, even though food was really important, my travels and food at that age were not significant except for the wild food. Well, I'm pretty sure Scotland, I mean, and if there's any Scots out there listening, <laughs> I do apologise, but you know what I'm talking about, has yes. a terrible culinary history. I mean, uh, people like Nick Nairn have kind of brought it back to life and yes, made it he's you wonderful. Know, yeah. current and, yeah. you know, exciting. But, you know, the idea of, I think deep fried is at the top of their culinary techniques list. But the wild food. Oh, the wild the, food is. A, the wild food yes. is extraordinary. So we'll, we'll give them that. No, I we'll mean, give them that. And the story is, of course, that, you know, back in the day, and I mean, it was probably late as late as, say, the 70s, the fishermen used to chuck back all the langoustine, you know, what are Dublin Bay prawns, because they used to destroy the nets. So they were just like bait fish. It was something that they threw away until they realised 
that there was a multi-million dollar business in exporting it to Runji in Paris, you know, and people would pay a fortune for it. Yeah, but the locals, no. But we used to pick up whelks off the off the shore and, you know, all of those things. And, and living there was a, a, an amazing time of my life. Potatoes, the potatoes that were covered with seaweed and tasted like no potatoes I'd ever had. So there were real pockets, but not your restaurants of those days. Yeah, maybe not Glasgow. <laughs> maybe good scones. You know, I don't know. Yeah. You must have some funny stories on your travels. My first travel was to New Zealand and I got a job as a Lyft driver <laughs> in a department store, Will Milne and Choice. And this first floor travel goods menswear, you know, and it was one of those very old fashioned ones that had the gears that would get stuck. And so my friends that I'd made on the boat going to New Zealand, my Scottish friend, I would finish up uh, getting the lift stuck on the top floor between the top floor and the roof (laughs) (laughs) just to have time to have a chat. And um, well, no one really uh, sort of cottoned on to that thankfully, because I went to give my notice after some eight weeks or so because I wanted to travel down to the South Island. And the boss said to me, oh, but we had such hopes for you. You could become the chief lift driver if you stayed. (laughs) And I thought, well, that goes down to history. Um, I lost an opportunity there. And I guess I had so many jobs when I was traveling so many jobs in my whole life looking for what I wanted to do. And one was when out of the Times in London, they used to have so many years ago, the front page of the Times were all these very funny little ads. And I got a job at Locker Urn in a sailing school to be the cook for the season for 12 weeks. And I'd never cooked before except for at home. But of course, I had more bravado. And they were desperate. Um, So I took the job and after six weeks, I got the sack because I've used the whole of the whole season's larder in six weeks. (laughs) And so they sacked me um, and because they had... (laughs) No more, no more provisions left. Oh dear! But they were very happy until they sacked me. Oh, they, uh, yeah, they, they were. were very they would have happy. eaten well. They would have thought you were the best cook that had ever graced the <laughs> ship or whatever it was. Oh, what did Travis? Sorry, you go. Well, I was just going to tell you one more, and that's when I got a job in uh, Scotland again at Lochor Argyle as the whiskey barmaid, and the whiskey barmaid was in this tiny little beautiful little bar in this grand sort of almost castle at Lockor Hotel. And it was all um, single malts. The reason I got the job, only because I didn't drink whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) But I had the best best time with all these local these local Scots and their broad accent and and the the manager was from the Lewis Isles and he was tall and large and gay in a day when you didn't talk about being gay and he had the most beautiful falsetto voice and he used to sing to me um, after we closed the bar at night so now, I have all those beautiful stories I guess how wonderful <laughs> what did traveling at that age teach you, do you think? Resilience, resilience. I got a job in Libya for BP as um, uh, assistant to the senior geophysicist for a a three-month period while someone was on leave. 
which was an amazing experience. But instead of taking the first-class airfare, I took the money and went overland by native taxi. Now, if ever you needed your wits about you and resilience that comes, (laughs) it was just extraordinary. I was nearly in the white slave trade. The things that happened to me, uh, but one of the things as well as resilience is about treating people well because the only reason I escaped from this experience was because there were Nubians who were the in front of the hotel I was staying at that I didn't know was a brothel, but, you know, they also took other people. Because I was just about to ask, you know, so when you said nearly part of the, what did you say? The white, white slave, slave trade. <laughs> yes. You're being serious. I, no, I'm being serious because I learned enough Arabic to plead to the taxi driver and he dropped me in front of the hotel, but the other person in the car or the cab was trying to drag me off. But I had been my Aussie self to these Nubian guards at the front of the hotel. And they got me and threw the other people, that that man, out. I mean, this is serious stuff. So there's resilience and your way of being kind to people you come across because it comes back to you. So the combination of two the combination in that situation. The combination of the two. Can, can you, um, only because I, I just love a bit of detail, but, you know, can you remember that taxi or oh, the smell or what these men were wearing? Well, it was only one man and I had been introduced to him through people in Libya, so it should have been okay. And we'd been to a nightclub next to the the pyramids, you know, and sneak belly dancers and all of that, so it'd been extreme. And then he tried to stop the cab in the middle of the desert and I fought that off and appealed to the driver. So I remember I remember it so well and I never told my daughters about it, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. Yes. So I've got this picture of this young uh, Australian woman being driven Long, around. Curvy. Was it? <laughs> yeah, Travelling, blonde, okay, add that bit in. Travelling on my own. And just having learnt enough Arabic, that was the other. So that was the other thing, picking mm. up a language. But those things, that saved me with the taxi driver. Oh, it was terrible. It was in Alexandria. Yeah. I think it's a little Australian in terms of naivety. I think Australians are still much the same where oh, they yes. think they can go anywhere because they can do that at home. And then you find out, you know, that somebody's disappeared in some far-flung destination, unprepared. It could have happened. I mean, when I say I took native taxi, so I was in a, that was from Benghazi through to Alexandria. And that was with four other people in the car, uh, natives, and um, sitting on the ground eating with a family and being given the eye of the sheep because I was the honoured guest because that's the, the principle of looking after your guest. It was totally naive. Do you remember the eye? Do you remember eating the eye? Yes, I remember swallowing it. Yes, I do. I remember eating with, we all ate with our hands and we, yeah, it was It's it was certainly a, quite a something. story. I've never heard this before, but why, why did you actually decide to overland rather than fly? Just adventure? Yes. Well, I wanted to come back via Istanbul to buy... <laughs> to buy some Turkish delight for my Scottish friend's father. (laughs) That's one hell of a risk, isn't it? What a journey. Uh, Here's your Turkish delight. Um, I won't tell you what happened along the way. Was it good Turkish delight, just out of curiosity? (laughs) Oh, yes, yes. 
And and I remember uh, I finished up getting a plane then to Istanbul and I remember having very little money because I couldn't access the bank account and I just ate dates and yogurt with the best yogurt I've ever eaten and bought the Turkish delight and got back on the plane. Sounds, I mean, <laughs> even though you were probably a bit desperate at the time, it sounds delicious, doesn't it? <laughs> it was delicious. <laughs> I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. How did you get a job in Libya? In, in Libya? Well, this is the front page of the Times okay. again. British Petroleum needs um, a person and uh, for three months. And I, you know, it's funny, I always had enough bravado and I could convince my way into a job and then I was always a quick learner. So <laughs> I got these amazing jobs. It was the 60s, remember? And so you could get it just on grit and attitude and the ability yeah. to learn. It's like uh, the optimism of youth, isn't it? The, convi- the yes. conviction of youth. <laughs> you know, having gone through that experience and delivered your Turkish delight, do you think you had an idea of what you wanted to be? No, I had no idea. And this is part of leaving school at 14 and not going to university. So you never... Um, quite knew where you were going to go, but because of the time, it never stopped me getting exciting jobs. But I was always in the back of my mind searching, always searching. I knew that I had to find something that really, that really gripped me. Yet every experience I had was so amazing. Like Colin and I married January 70 and I got a job with the American government and they put me through citizenship law. And I had an amazing three years with them and the experiences I had there. It's like life has been a jigsaw and every position I've held, every job I've taken gave me something that prepared me for life when we came to South Australia. So what was that was that something that you and Colin had discussed or it was just by chance? No, it was his dream, his vision. When we married in January 70, he'd, we met at Mount Buller skiing and he'd just done his commercial pilot's licence in New Zealand and couldn't get a job. I threw in my job at the time with ANSET General Aviation. I was assistant to the general manager there, which is light aircraft. So when we met, we collided on aircraft and flying, right? And so we married 16 weeks after we met. So, you know, risk takers, you can take that into account. But he came from Malala in South Australia and he had a vision of farming pheasants because of doing his pilot's license, commercial license in New Zealand and seeing wild game. And then he married this Sydney cider and tried living in Sydney and he didn't love it. And I was working very high pressure jobs and would get migraines with the humidity and, you know, that weekend release of pressure that happened. So he said, we're going to South Australia. 
And so that was it. But I thought I would do winemaking, uh, do enology at Roseworthy. But that never happened because Colin bred the pheasants. No one knew how to cook them. And I never thought of not cooking. It was just instinct for me. And so that's what happened. (laughs) What attracted you to Colin in the first place? (laughs) Well, because he has such humour and he makes me laugh and we've been married 51 years and he still makes me laugh every day. He has such a wit and he comes of small business people. I come of small business people. So we were risk takers, as I said, but he also supported my dream more than I supported his because he gave me confidence in myself. I had bravado, but not confidence. And can you think of little ways that he would do that? No, it was just a belief, a belief in in the fact that I would go, I was never practical and he would allow me these flights of fancy and then he'd put the practical bits around it. He would be excited by my excitement. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. When did you open the pheasant farm? Uh, We opened January the 19th, 1979. Right. Because I I had a friend that I believe had been to the pheasant farm and I didn't know anything about it, but had loved it and talked about it all the time. It was like his, he'd been, you know, to the pheasant farm. But it was very simple. We just used everything that we grew, which was uh, pheasant, quail, guinea fowl, partridge. It was all about game. We, After Chong Lu, I was the second person to use kangaroo in the restaurants and venison. So, And there were no vegetarians at the, those days. People weren't thinking about vegetarianism, but I had lots. We had locals grow for us, you know, salsify. And I remember zucchini squash and all sorts of things that we did way before anybody else. And we used to forage. We used to forage the wild mushrooms and dry them. Belitis granulatus, not Belitis edulis. And so it was so simple. It was such a country restaurant. But when we won the Remy Martin Gourmet Traveller Restaurant of the Year, it catapulted us into something else that I never changed. And I was obsessive. I was always at the stoves. But um, Colin got <laughs> Colin got tired of the public that would come, you know, they'd come in in helicopters. And in winning that award, people that didn't know us had the perception that we were going to be not glitzy, but, you know, refined. And we were country. And the fact that we won, it was the biggest shock to me and everybody else. Uh, (laughs) But it was obviously something, you know, and I'm just guessing at the time that whether it was a reviewer or whether it was a number of people felt that we needed at the time, that was a breakaway from, you know, the idea of a fancy restaurant, do you think? Look, we got a lot of fantastic um, press, but we had a cult following until we won that top award for Australia. I mean, that was that was a big change, but it took an international judge to make that judgment because we had already in Sydney and Melbourne gone into the very sophisticated, refined. So Patricia Wells was the judge. And so she was making the judgment that this is what we needed 
and she would be what I'm going to struggle maybe to describe her to the audience and listening that if you don't know, but maybe, a, I mean, I think of her as being a champion of uh, French, you know, rustic uh, f- food. Yes. She was a food writer in New York and in Paris and they lived in the south of France and they had this beautiful Lavrin. I remember going to stay there. This, You know, she was entrenched into this tradition of rustic, And local and from the um, place. and uh, Local, yeah. from the place, all of those things. So that's obviously what appealed to her was that yes. kind of, that, that sense of place that you established at the pheasant farm. Exactly, but she also, you know, she also was loved the the Michelin star of Paris too. Yeah, of I course. mean, she lived the high life. Yeah, but I think her heart was there, which was my luck. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this idea of the pheasant farm, I mean, it started as a farm shop, yeah, yes, and rearing yes. pheasant. Did did uh, the ideas come naturally, or was it was it hard kind of earned? No, I just uh, from the day one. I just was excited by the ideas because I'd always cooked, right, and loved cooking. And I just, I, I never followed a recipe. I just, I just felt things, right. And then I became really excited reading about French women who cook. Madeleine Command, the great um, food writer from uh, France, who did so much work in the southwest France, but did this wonderful book, When French Women Cook. So I would I would throw myself into looking at those women chefs across France and then into the regions of Italy. So I would take an idea and then translate it to my own climate and my own palate. I just immersed myself in reading I was on this journey that was so exciting because we live in a Mediterranean climate and we grew everything. I mean, what's not to love when you're cooking is is in your heart? Yes. But, I mean, Australia would have been a very different place. I mean, I know you're saying that um, you've got local producers and encourage them to plant, you know, salsify and things like that. You would not find any of that back in the 80s, surely. No, no. I mean, you would have had to beg somebody to grow something like that. I used to bring in seeds from a Dutch company, right, because I would read about these things. So I'd bring in seeds from these Dutch company and then get a local grower. But early, about 1980 was the first time I saw basil. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of what the time frame is and how simple the accessibility to vegetables we now see as norm today. We take them for granted, don't totally. we? And I've heard, I mean, I, even in my career, I've heard, you know, having, sent, you know, being in Australia, you know, so many stories of people saying, well, I smuggled that in, you know, shh, don't tell anyone. But the only reason it exists is because yes. those seeds got in, were planted, which sounds, anybody that's listening that, and we're all champions of our environment and our, you know, etc. Yeah. But we wouldn't have seen any of this stuff. Well, here, that there is no doubt the real excitement in our food today in Australia and for the last 20, 30 years has been our immigration. I mean, we would be very boring without it. Sorry, you. I know you're a pom, but, you know, uh, <laughs> the Anglo-Saxon diet is, well, we were talking. Leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. So we have so much to be thankful for, but even so, these were families in their own backyards growing everything. They weren't in the marketplace. 
Yeah, oh, look, even when I came, and like I say, that was 91, I remember asking one of the suppliers for fennel. He said, we can't get it. And I said, but it's all growing along the train tracks, you know, from Box Hill to Melbourne. It's, it's there. And he said, well, I can't get it. And it wasn't until people, obviously, in Melbourne, like Stephanie or Mark Eddy, for example, that would have driven the suppliers to grow uh, plum tomatoes, you know, like, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have seen them. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Stephanie was such a uh, a pioneer in getting people, but it was interesting because we were abreast about the same time when you think about it. We first met, Stephanie and I, in 1984 at the first Symposium of Gastronomy held in Adelaide. And um, she was much more sophisticated and much more entrenched because she was in Melbourne, which is to me, the food capital. And our friendship developed there. Even though we had very different places, I learned so much from her. How did you transition from pheasant farm into manufacturing, for example? Okay. Well, all of the time from 1979, I made pate. I made pate and pickled quail's eggs and made terrines as all part of the farm shop. And then all through the um, pheasant farm, there was always pate on the menu. That, And then we started selling, you know, a customer um, from Adelaide. Our first customer was Gulf Seafoods and they drove up and said, we want to buy a block of pate every week. And Colin would deliver one block of 720 grams pate <laughs> to Adelaide. And we were so thrilled. And I'd make the pate in between, you know, at the end of service or the beginning early in the morning in little food processes, right? So that's how it all started. And then we got bigger with the pate on the farm. Uh, so we always... From 1982, we were selling it commercially in very small ways and then it just spread. And so the incubator room was made into the pate kitchen. But then when we closed the restaurant at the height of its fame in um, November um, 93, because I was really burnt out, um, a few years later we were asked to export our pate to Japan so to do that, we had to build an export kitchen in Tananda, which we did. And and that was the beginning of truly being able to do it on a larger scale. Well, we first started the export kitchen with four people and then 100 people was the norm in the last few years. Why Japan, just out of curiosity? Was it through uh, tourism or a visit to the restaurant? Well, no, it was this lovely story. Adam Wynne, um, who with his father, David Wynne, had the winery in the Barossa Valley, very famous winery. And Adam sold his wine to a Japanese importer, Toshio Yasuma. And Toshio was such a good man that when he bought Adam's wines, Mount Adam it was called, uh, he would sell them himself for five years before he'd put them on the market. And in all the years that Adam would go to Japan, he would take our pate as a gift. And Toshio loved it so much. He said, I want to bring it into Japan and I will lend you the money to build the export kitchen. And so we went to the bank instead, but... <laughs> <laughs> what a story. I, I, mean, I must admit, I, I remember talking to Nick Haddo from Bruny Island Cheese and he tells a very funny story which I love about following the love in business. And what he means by that is any kind of compliment or little, you know, because you're working so hard 
to to do this that he said that's where you where you tend to go whether it's the right decision or not so i think he was exporting to america and he said how ridiculous when he looks back you know, a small island, which is Bruni Island, of a small island, which is Tasmania, of a big one, which is Australia. And he goes, I'm exporting this cheese to America. But he said that's where the love was. Do you relate to that at all? Or? Oh, uh, absolutely. So no, no one's mean, buying it in Adelaide, but somebody's buying it in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily they were buying it right, in Adelaide gotcha. too. But the thing is, I was so taken by Toshio, whose love of food. So that's why uh, I guess I've had 10 trips to Japan. And sadly, Toshio died very young of a brain embolism. But he introduced me to a Japan and a world of food that I was so privileged because we shared this love of food and music and opera. And, and, um, and so he was always pressing me, wanting to shock me <laughs> as well as, as well as share his love of, of Japanese food. So I certainly know you love uh, Japan and I, yes. I watched the series you made, which I thought was beautiful because it was very, um, very personal, yes. actually, very yeah. personal kind of travelogue and story. Um, just sticking with the manufacturing for a bit, because <laughs> I look at your kind of empire and let's be honest, that's what it is, what it was and your energy so much admiration for what you've done. Was there any a point, because you mentioned being exhausted in 93, was there a point where you've just gone, it's just getting too big, I can't keep up? Uh, no, no. I'm driven by ideas and my whole thing was always product development and ideas and how to be able to bring them to, you know, scale up because scaling up is the hardest thing you do in manufacturing in food. So I was always, uh, I still am energized by these ideas. And even though we have sold the business, I still keep very close to it and I'm involved in product development. But the point we reached was all our life, everything went back into the business. And, you know, small business people do this. And it's what, 23 years before we said both our daughters didn't want to go into the business and so there was no succession plan. And having worked that hard, we realised that we'd never have our day in the sun, if you like, <laughs> um, to be able to be free of financial burdens. And so that's what, of, of the many requests we had to sell over the years, we were never interested until that point and the right person came along. Yeah. I think I actually asked you on the set of Master Set, are you... On, on the set of MasterChef, are you going to stop? And I think at the time, this was a number of years ago, I said, no, not really. And it was it was quite dismissive in a sense that I don't know what you're talking about. And I thought, geez, the energy of the woman, you know. <laughs> so I love the fact that um, actually it connects yeah. with uh, Colin off to buy uh, black sesame paste, to be honest, because then you have a little more time to do the things that you, you really love and have a play. And that's wonderful about food, isn't it? It is. Mind you, in selling the business, we still, the farm shop, the eatery, all the farming is still ours and we still run that. So that still gives me a beautiful outlet. And then there's my foundation. I mean, well, we can I, talk about, let's talk about that because that'd be lovely to talk about. Yes. What did you set up? Well, in 2014, I set up a foundation, the Maggie Beer Foundation, which seems mm -hmm. a bit pompous, but it's about I need to change the food in aged care. Um, there are people that do it brilliantly and try very, very hard. But if ever there is 
uh, spotlight on aged care. It happened with the Royal Commission and COVID that, you know, for the first few years, advocacy to bring the plight to the attention of the public was very hard, but now it's our time. And for the five years I've been doing masterclasses where I pull in 30 cooks and chefs at a time for, for two days where we cook and, and we, we, we bring in the experts of things that are really important that the cooks and chefs know because there's no formal training. This is a very complex arena. Cooks and chefs are not respected. There are always great exceptions, but I'm talking for a great part. They're not given the support, the knowledge and the skill. This is this is such a difficult arena. My friend Simon Bryant, who you know, I'm sure, says it is so much more difficult to be a cook or chef in aged care and do it brilliantly than any restaurant you'll go to because of all all the things you have to know. And that knowledge is not there. But the great thing about it is February 19th, uh, 18th and 19th, um, we're holding a congress in Sydney um, where we've brought all the parts of aged care that will be in the one room and the Department of Health actually asked me to do this and my foundation because they know instead of finding just problems, we feel we have solutions to share. But by bringing everyone else into this working group of 20 people with from all these different arenas so we can meld everything together and all come out convinced that we can do I, I know we can do so much better, but we have to bring everyone along with us, Gary. Yeah, I think that's what I was most impressed about when, you know, knowing what you do, you know, with the foundation is the fact that at the centre of it, it's about a think tank, essentially, whether yes. it's teaching or gathering ideas from chefs that are cooks and chefs that are in the business, et cetera, which is really inspiring. What Can you tell us what the biggest hurdles are and, and maybe one or two of the solutions, do you think? Okay, the biggest hurdle is education. Um, training. And the solution to that is I'm about to film in Sydney in April the first 11 segments of what I think are the most important parts of knowledge to share with an aged care chef. And that will be online learning because mm. as much as I do the masterclasses, I only do two or three a year and I can't get to enough. Yeah, it's a small touch point, isn't yes, it? Yes, but respect respect and knowledge. The biggest hurdle I see is that not everyone understands the most amazing difference that beautiful food with all the smells and touch points and the dining experience can do of, of the right nutritious food that with so much pleasure will do to well-being. So once you understand that as a, a group and an organisation, then it behoves you to change it. And because we we must think that those not able to look after themselves have got to be given a good life to the end of their life. Yeah. It's interesting because I read something uh, recently about COVID and how it's affecting Japan and its elderly. And in that article, it was talking about how well, and I'm only connecting because you're of your love of Japan, how well the Japanese look after they're elderly and how within aged care they're constantly uh, thinking about how they offer a better, you know, stimulus and 
whether it's arts and crafts or food or whatever, to engage and, you know, give people that are older a great standard of living. See, that's a very interesting point for many reasons. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, there is so much good work being done in the aged care arena, so I'm not into just bagging it. I'm into looking at where we can change. But with Japan, the difference is their food culture is so important from the day they're born where Mm. everyone in the food chain is connected with pride, right, and importance. And so I have very close friends in Japan and one whose mother died a few months ago and uh, at the age of 94 and I've known her for 20 years. And when she went into an aged care home, I would get the menus because of my interest in it. And it was all about tempting the appetite Mm. because it's the food culture We are developing a food culture, there is no doubt about it, but it's not ingrained. Yeah, it's still new and it's selective in a sense, you know. It belongs to the most privileged of us, really, who have have that, I suppose, privilege to enjoy it on the level we want to. And lots of people don't have that. Yes. More support. And if people want to get involved in any way or just to be aware of it. Well, I'd love them to go to my website, maggiebeerfoundation.org.au, because it has a lot of information about the things that are going to make a difference. And we're not just talking about aged care homes. We're talking about how do they cook for a carer within their home, at home. Not everyone knows the, the amount of nutrition someone needs, you know, like protein all through the day dairy that's so important. But really, I'd love people to think about supporting in some way. And there are lots of ways, volunteering, you know, there's so many things that can be done to make life better for people that can't look after themselves. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful stuff. We could talk about that for a long time. (laughs) I'm just watching the clock because I'm going to get you out of here on one hour because you're, where are you off to? Tell me I, again. I'm speaking at uh, the National Wine Centre today at 12 o'clock. <laughs> I, I have to ask you about Senior Australian of the Year because, you know, we were in the industry. I think we we're all thrilled when you got it. But ha- how did that feel? <laughs> uh, I hadn't quite figured that I'd become a senior. Um, I was going to say, did you want him to leave the senior? <laughs> Just leave the senior off that. Well, I was, I was 65 or perhaps 66. Uh, I'm 76 now, so yeah, yes. Uh, but well, it's if, not even senior at 65 anymore. Come no, on. No, no, that's exactly right. In fact, the one thing I, I've challenged um, the organisation on <laughs> is we have to find a better way, yeah. a better word, but what is it? It escapes me at the moment. But um, it was amazing. But it, it was a year when I had 900 requests to speak and I didn't do all of them, but I tried to pick out those that I thought I could make a difference with. And that's really what started the journey with aged care because I was asked to do a keynote speech for the annual conference of aged care. And I was quite naive, um, uh, idealistic. Uh, I did a lot of research before it and, you know, and I saw great things and terrible things. And, you know, once you see the terrible things, you realise you have a platform, you have to use it. It took a while to figure out how to do that. It's changed my life and it's going to be for the rest of my life. (laughs) Well, I think the naivety is probably the best place you could have started from. But using that platform, obviously... Yeah. Um, as Australian of the Year or Senior Australian of the Year. We'll find a different word. It obviously <laughs> gave you great leverage, which is 
Exactly. Unexpected, possibly that kind of leverage in your life. You never imagined that. Yes, it's really interesting. I've talked to Stephanie about this. Um, it was right in front of me, but I never saw it. And we joked one day, I think when we were both made um, stamps and were sitting on a, <laughs> um, uh, sitting on a rostrum talking in Melbourne and said, well, Stephanie's taking from the, the young and I'm taking the old. And <laughs> But the story is the same this knowledge of food, the love of food and what good food can do for you in the way of pleasure and as well as health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any regrets? Oh, the regrets are that you never have enough time for your children. When you're a workaholic and you're on a path and as much as you love them and they're close to you, what mother doesn't have that regret? Mm. Don't forget, as children, we all admire. I mean, listen how you talk about your dad and your mum. I mean, from a <laughs> child's perspective, it's a it's an entirely different thing. Yes, yes, yes. And on an uplifting yes. um, note, your greatest achievement, do you think? <gasps> oh, um, my greatest achievement is I think I have the ability to make people feel comfortable about cooking, you know, because I'm so chaotic and frenetic and <laughs> and I'll try anything and I'm simple, <laughs> that I can share this love of food I have and give them the key into it. Gosh, I, it's, it's, oh, Gary, that's a very hard question, but I know that's something I love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, you know what? In the intro, I just said um, she always puts a smile on my face and she can walk into a room and make everyone feel good. <laughs> and I put I put that that's maybe the reason she's been so successful. And I'm sticking to that one because it's something about you. You know when someone has a little something uh, and you have that little something. So <laughs> thank you so much for spending one glorious hour of your time on my podcast. I hope you have a fabulous day, but I have to ask you just before you walk out, because I normally do a little tips and tricks. And I thought, I can't do tips and tricks on the back end of a podcast with Maggie. So I have to ask you, and it should be something specific, I suppose. So your favorite tip or trick when it comes to, and you can pick a subject, it could be pastry or, you know, your sour cream pastry. Or it could be okay. your roast chicken or it could be – actually, you can choose because you're okay. making beer. All right. I'm going to give you two. Um, uh, well, firstly, the roast chook. So, I, I have to do this. when If you roast a beautifully well-brought-up chook and don't overcook it, only take it to 65 degrees, um, as you take it out of the oven, turn it upside down and drizzle it with verjuice and the difference is extraordinary. That's number one. But two is have a vegetable garden. Last night at dinner, Colin actually picked the zucchini an hour before dinner. I just cut it in half with some, uh, we had capsicums too, and drizzled it with some oil on the barbecue, an hour's difference between picking and eating and that zucchini, so sweet, so beautiful. And who will ever say, what's with zucchini? 
Wow. Nothing more to add. Inspiration in spades. Maggie Beer, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Gary. It's lovely talking to you. <laughs> A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.